Welcome to the Heart of Soul podcast, an exploration of who you are, what you are, and why you are, offering new ways to investigate age-old questions at the heart of you. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. We're back, a forward after the holidays and wasting no time deconstructing compensatory mainstream psychological tools made by and for unconscious protectors. Today we focus on the domain of coping and spiritualized self-regulation and how it enables people to stay immature and can even harm children as well. Thanks so much for listening. It's good to be forward. Greetings and welcome forward. It's your lucky day. Our break is over. We took a very long winter break in the tradition of greats like Bill Maher and other people who their holiday break is like five weeks and uh welcome back welcome forward stace i almost forgot the thing Um, it feels like it's been 12 to 18 months since we recorded this um feels like it yeah been a while yeah so i'm excited to be back and um uh, we're we're bringing new um i I don't want to say improved versions of ourselves oh for those of you who are watching video right now there's a lizard on the wall behind me which is a fun distraction to look at um one without a tail but they grow back so fast. Um, what was I just talking about? Oh, yeah, I forgot how to do podcasts, so I'm having to relearn how to do this again. Uh, I wouldn't say new new and improved versions of ourselves, uh, new and evolved versions of ourselves, perhaps. Oh, there you go. Evolved. Uh, That's a better word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, Stace, you had some announcements. I want to make sure we have time for in the beginning for some upcoming events. Yeah. Um, anyone who's uh, been following the podcast, if you'd like a little more immediate um, inner interface. Uh, Bree and I are um, are uh, hosting uh, what we call a curiosity circles. We've got one coming up on Zoom on uh, February first, uh, nine a.m. Pacific Standard Time, wherever that may uh, find you, uh, where you're at. And uh, it's an aptly named um, uh, 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 framework because it, it's sort of like what we used to call Open Door Day. Um, where we would show up somewhere with a one-day seminar where people could just bring whatever they wanted to bring, questions about themselves and the human, questions about themselves and the spirit, um, questions about how things, how identity sees uh, this whole spiritual human connection and what's at stake with it. Um, people who would like to meet Bree and I uh, not having met us before that you've heard about us. Um, so all sorts of open-ended um, uh, uh, agenda items there. Whatever uh, curiosity about identity, about Bree and I, and about uh, what we do. So that's not that's a couple hours uh, on from on um, February first. If uh, you're interested in that, it's not very expensive, twenty-five uh, U.S. dollars for the uh, two hours. So we want to make an inexpensive access gate to get to know us better and to maybe have a more casual interface with uh, people who want to know more about identity. And also second, uh, we've got a, a seminar. We've actually gotten out, uh, looks like two seminars set up uh, in, in Germany and, uh, in uh, the spring. Uh, April 28th, we have uh, a, uh, a relationality um, um, seminar in, in, uh, in Fulda, uh, near the north, north, middle north part of Germany about relationality and what that really means, our identities take on it. We also have an introduction to um, 
uh, identity set up for uh, main, I think uh, it's uh, 17, 18, 19, or 18, 19, 20, something like that, uh, that for an introduction to the whole paradigm, uh, uh, two, two days in the evening before a weekend and uh, the night before, Friday night before introduction to identity, Bri and I uh, will co-host that. So both those, uh, those uh, events are on the website, uh, identity.org. If you're interested, you can get a little more information there. So, cool. wow, I haven't I haven't tried to do an advertisement in years and years. That was really so. good. He wasn't reading, by the way. He just made that up. That was great. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah and I want to add, of course, the response to the pop podcast has been so overwhelming, and uh, with the break, the hunger was even more stimulated. So. Um, a lot of you already know that uh, Stace and I are going to be doing live podcast tour beginning in San Francisco, then New Orleans, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. We're doing Mo uh, Madison Square Garden. There still are tickets available for the Madison Square Garden <laughs> show. Um, that'll be in uh, April during spring break. So I'm just kidding. Of course, all that is made up. <laughs> you had me for about uh, 16 seconds there. What, where is he going with this? <laughs> God, I was thinking you were Joe Rogan or something, you know? Right, uh, yeah. That's what, that's what like people like Bill Martin will be in Las Vegas uh, <laughs> for the long weekend in February. Uh, we're doing Leap Year um, in, uh, yeah, in Seattle. Um, it's going to be great. We hope you can make it. Yeah. One day, perhaps. Okay. Oh, one day, perhaps. Wouldn't that be lovely? So uh, Stace and I didn't know what to do today. And I always find um, well, when I speak, uh, I'm increasingly less able to plan in advance. And when when something doesn't show up that, that day, it I, I've learned to be able to trust that something will actually show up and not really worry about it. And then I opened up my Google Doc that has the notes from all uh, 82 previous episodes. And I found this little quote that I had pasted for myself. I don't really have any memory of doing it, but I must have done it um, from that we were going to do before we took the break. And it was on the deck for the next episode. Isn't that funny? So we didn't have to come up with anything because I already had. Well then, okay. And it was a topic that spontaneously came up with a client I was speaking with earlier today. So that also validated it. And the, the subject... Um, I will, rather than introducing it, I'll just read the quote. And this is from some article. I mean, we did a few episodes recently. Well, not recently, but recently for the listeners, perhaps, about uh, psychologists and neurologists and neuroscientists uh, saying things about emotions. And this is another takes the cake kind of uh, uh, quote. This is Laura Morlock, a licensed clinical professional counselor from, from Playful Therapy Connections, Suggests, this is an excerpt from an article, suggests also demonstrating these strategies yourself, out of context, but here we go. Quote, you can support your child in managing their emotions, which if you've been listening to this podcast, should record scratch you right there, managing their emotions, <laughs> that should give you pause, by modeling coping strategies, and then we add on to that, so modeling coping strategies, and then practicing them together, i.e., parent with the child. Subquote, I'm feeling angry because I dropped the bowl and it broke. This would be the parent talking. I think I need to take some deep breaths. Can you take, you being the child, some deep breaths with me? End quote. This can help a child better understand how and when to apply coping strategies. And we will now talk about how this is child abuse. <laughs> 
<laughs> with oh, as somber tones as we can muster without laughing instead of crying. Exactly. Uh, every bit of the chuckles I just had uh, are exactly that. There's anguish in yeah. them. But let's let's first um, make sure everyone's on the same page as uh, how we um, both go into the content, the context, and maybe the meta context of this quote and what it means for um, uh, parenting, basically. Yeah. Uh, this what what this uh, Laura is talking about here uh, likely works for sixty to seventy percent of uh, parents out there um, who are. Um, younger souls and uh, and or souls that are served well by the standard services and institutions of psychology and philosophy and religion and um, humanism, uh, uh, to name a few. So uh, we're not running this down as inapplicable uh, to everyone in terms of what works, which we could well, want to unpack that. Which is different today. than what's healthy and mature. Yeah. Exactly. Just because something works doesn't mean even for young souls that in uh, future lives, it won't, it actually isn't applicable to real metamorphosis, literally real transmutation instead of just coping mechanisms. Yeah. Uh, the, the paradigm of psychology, neurology, uh, as we taught, as you already mentioned, Joseph, of course, is based on the fact that the essence of us is energetic or physical or mental based on the notion not the fact yes the yeah. notions the ideas yeah. what makes us us mostly is either body brain mentality <clears throat> or energy so in that sense uh their parent what laura is saying here is resonant with their paradigm uh, so in the meta context what we've got here, why we were chuckling, covering over anguish, mm. is that um, in the meta, uh, uh, there are paradigmatic assumptions about the essential nature of human beings, um, and especially how those get subcategorized uh, with parenting and children's consciousness. Um, clearly displays what how they diagnose and treat uh, or relate to a certain issue, in this case, parenting, right? And I, I want to insert something here. I, it just occurred to me, I think I got another layer of why I laugh at this kind of stuff. Because you know how one aspect of humor is taking an idea to an absurd conclusion, taking oh, it to an extreme? Mm -hmm. That's what this is, right? You would never read this like 20 or 30 years ago, the idea of taking coping mechanisms so far as to mm -hmm. model it out loud explicitly with the child and invite the child to help the parent. That's taking the idea of coping to an, a logical extreme. And in, yes. in that way, it's like it, to, it, there's a way in which it's like a monkey riding a bicycle. It's like, wow, that's really wild. You took this really far. You got the monkey riding a bicycle. It still hurts in a way, but it, it's also reducto ad uh, absurdum. Um, because yeah. just the idea that to, that it would be a good idea to involve the child in this way. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm still covering up anguish, but there's something funny about that. It's like, it's, it's, it's a caricature. Like, mm -hmm. what's next of gathering all the children in the neighborhood to help the, your child and doing it as a big group? It's like, it just becomes more and more absurd. Like, when are you going to realize that your coping isn't working and that's why you're having to involve other people? 
you know, to participate uh, in it oh, with you. Ex exactly. For, for a different paradigm governing this particular question, Drop, parent drops um, a bowl, breaks it. Maybe it was an heirloom from mama, mama's side of the family. And all of a sudden, uh, a bunch of F words come out and uh, the, 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 the parent uh, she gets enraged, uh, starts uh, yelling, oh, my God, what did I do? I'm such a klutz, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in other words, they don't want the, and the context here is that they don't want the child to see quote unquote, a healthy way to deal with the mis unexpected misfortune, right? Well, there's an assumption there that like all of that swearing and the upset and the self-judgment would be bad for the child to be exposed to because exactly. the, the vehicle of exposure is verbal, mental, and energetic. Yes. Is the assumption, which we would completely right. disagree with. We would say whether you say or express those things or not, if they're in you, the child has already absorbed them probably five years before you first said anything like that. Based on our paradigm's um, assumption that children will unconsciously absorb what a parent isn't explicitly expressing, but they are innerly feeling. That, that, that's not such an alien concept for some forms of uh, therapeutic uh, yeah. assumptions uh, that the child uh, literally, whatever the parent represses, the child will feel. So what Joseph was beautifully way you said that is uh, just because uh, they, they want to stop the outer uh, shallower dimensions of, of uh, their reaction to dropping and breaking their bowl doesn't mean like you said, <laughs> The child hasn't absorbed their self-judgment uh, and their insecurities uh, for years from years before. And, and then, of course, the, the, the idea that you could stop the child from receiving that is a projection of the adult's own protector's mechanism in the first place. Because yeah. that's what the adult is doing with themselves. I don't want to deal yeah. with these feelings myself, so right. I'm pushing them down. And then makes it look like some noble gesture that I'm going to repress them even better, quote, better, and mm -hmm. save my child from dealing with these by repressing it with them as well. In fact, I'm going to get their help to repress them. Oh, my God, this is starting to sound really fucked. Right? The, the, this, uh, this is so... Um... Well, I'll just, I'll use the word wrong relative to our paradigmatic assumptions. Got to mm -hmm. always put that in. No one yeah. knows absolute truth. Nobody. Um, so it's just so, it's wrong in so many dimensions. It's difficult to, where to begin here. Uh, we've, we've done our best here. Uh, but the, the idea that a parent would um, break the parent, the slope that's inherently um, a part of the parent-child uh, relational dynamic. Parent mm -hmm. uh, raising one hand up, one higher and the other lower, the parent-child slope dynamic. Mm -hmm. They want to do this with it, which is leveling the playing field, and get the child's help uh, uh, in it, by utilizing the child. Let's do something together, mom and, and child or papa and child, and this will show you how to do it literally strategically here's how you manage your um surprise uh, an unexpected negative emotion let's say yeah and from the from this particular psychological paradigm's perspective 
why not? That's why this is yeah. reductio mm-hmm. ad absurdum because it's like, well, this is what now we we covered the uh, the trigger thing. What was it called? The glimmer turning triggers into glimmers yes. five or six episodes yes. ago. So it's like if right, this right. is if it because the uh, emotions are becoming less and less repressible, so the coping mechanisms are becoming more and more exacting from neuroscientists yeah. and psychology. So yeah. yeah, why not do training with your kids on how to repress their emotions when they're four or five years old in explicit ways? That's completely consistent with their paradigm. It's also going right. to really make these kids pissed when they grow up because, yes. or even when they're teenagers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And th- there's a story I want to share actually that's related to this that that sort of de-repressed in me recently for some reason um, that, that came from a, a, a part that I've been working with. Uh, Around 11 or 12, I started mowing the grass for my father, and I came up with this way of turning the mower 180 degrees when I got to the end of a row, sort of like when you put your hand on a steering wheel and let the and and um, uh, turn the wheel without gripping it. It was similar to that. I'd push down on the corner of the handle, and then I'd walk very gracefully two or three steps and get the thing to pivot, but I had to push the mower handle down to like my hip level to get it to pivot really nicely. And, uh. um, and it was, I, it was like my favorite part of mowing. It was really effortless. I felt like I'd created something cool and was very proud of myself. And after finishing the mowing one day, my father pulled me aside and said, that thing you're doing where you tip the mower up like that, don't, don't, don't do that. Okay. And I was like, and I was already, you know, 11 or 12. So I asked the reasonable question, but why not? Because I was really proud of it. It was like, cool for me and he's like well the blades are showing more and it's just it's dangerous and i'm like i didn't believe it like how is it dangerous i'm on the other side of the mower no one's around the blades are you know attached to the mower while they're spinning around they're not going to fly through the air through the window of the house and kill someone and i remember the i don't remember what we talked about but i remember the argument and i remember being very dissatisfied about how he wouldn't give me an answer and feeling really invisible and unseen because I'd come up with this and there was just no yes to it at all. It was all no for no good reason. And when this memory surfaced to me about a week ago, it hit me for the first time like, oh, he was afraid. He was afraid because the blades were showing and he was afraid of life. And I don't know if he was aware of that or not in that moment, that he was making his fear my responsibility, which was something both of my parents did. And in that yes. micro moment, it was like, oh, that was like the milieu that I grew up in. My parents were always afraid, never could admit it or say it, but I was always responsible in some chronic way. Don't, you know, don't do that. It makes me nervous. Don't do this. It, just, it was like this control that was actually them trying to control their own fears, which is exactly what this, it, this like, let's share this coping mechanism thing is just a very sophisticated version of that. I don't want to feel my fear, so let's do this together. At least, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just more explicit. So, wow, that was so applicable, what you just shared there, Joseph. And if you're a parent and you recognized yourself in mm-hmm. Joseph's little uh, soliloquy there, um, where don't you, you're, you're um, uh, uh, telling your children, don't do that because it makes you nervous. You were not taught in any parenting manual that that's making the child responsible for your feelings. Mm -hmm. 
And that completely congests up um, a really basic, really ABC basic level of what relationality is, yeah. that the child will get completely warped, that it's my job to take care of the emotions of other. That's what the parent is templating there with their authority. It's your the child's job. And what that does is turn a child into a pretzel and never allows the child to actually drop into um how they feel because they're busy helping their parents manage and cope with what they're feeling. Yes. So a <laughs> relational pretzel here, recovering, reporting for duty. And I can say, as you say, that's exactly what it does, especially in intimate relationships. I've tended to attract women who would make me responsible for their feelings. Yes. And I've, and um, which is their responsibility. But on, what my responsibility is, I would have uh, either take on too much of that in the beginning. Yes. And right. then eventually push back sort of, um, I don't know, violently is a strong word, push back excessively against it, um, both of which are non-relational. And that's, and that's exactly where this comes from, because there's this feeling of like, oh, shit, the woman is having a strong feeling. I better take that on. And then I can't help. I can't do anything with it. And usually what I would do to try to help would be rejected. And then from the protector is this will screw you. You're on your own. And then I don't want to feel anything that you're feeling a pushback that's too strong. That's what it wow. does. It does. And and it maybe is a little uh, thing to put a, a red tab here at the moment and pause and, and co go, come to another context for everything we're saying here. And that is that because of the inherent uh, um, um, in, uh, intensity of closeness that happens between children yeah. and parents, um, that's reciprocated in intimacy. In other words, intimacy is the most um, aspects of the human condition that we can share with another. You mean uh, recapitulated, yeah? Recapitulated. What did I, I say? Reciprocated. Reciprocated. For those listening well, at home, it's an extremely yeah. good sign that Stace got that word wrong. <laughs> That's a testament to the really great work he's doing right now. I've I've heard you say that word so many times in exactly that context. I've never heard you make, make that mistake. Wow! Congratulations. Wow. That's great. Yeah, that's I, I've I've got uh, an intended short circuit in my mental body. Yeah, uh, and that's because my emotional body is ripening in a direction it hasn't before. Yeah, and notice so. it probably didn't screw anyone up because you could kind of make reciprocated work yeah. in that sentence. You, yeah, you could do it. So, yeah. so the word, the proper word again is. Re now I can't get it. Re uh, re I want to say regurgitated. Um, recapitulated. 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 Right. So the inherent closeness, uh, uh, the bonding bandwidth, so child learns as a template of relationality. Yeah. In other words, what is parenting? We've got a, a ton of different um, uh, definitions, but it, you're literally a parent is templating what ration, relationality means in the most intense possible way, where the child literally is in emotional and physical thrall to um, the nurturing um, bandwidths, uh, physical through emotional yeah. from it, the parents. And includes, but is not limited to what love is, which is a way of putting right. a really fine point. Oh, e e exactly right. So that's recapitulated in intimacy in re some really counterintuitive resonant ways. The warpages and the downright um, contradictions and burdens that children, that parents put on children without even knowing they're doing it will show up in intimacy as an adult 
because it, it it's not the same, but it becomes so close with sexual, um, uh, sensual, mental, physic, uh, physical in general, uh, spiritual, intellectual, emotional uh, bandwidths that are exchanged in intimacy. It, it, it recapitulates uh, childhood. So all of these uh, ways that parents template relationality in the way that Joseph just described had one-to-one -one correspondence with uh, challenges we all have in intimacy that we don't mm -hmm. really get come from these subtle uh, dynamics in parents' relationship with their child that uh, cripple uh, so I know that's not a not woke word these days. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's able. It's what is it? Ableist. Uh, it's the ableist able, word. No, we're not yeah, throwing out the like word that. cripple. Uh, no, we're not. used in that I mean, way for that reason. Right. It's it's not. It's a it cripples a, a, a child's ability to grow up into a, a an adult with well, let me, clean and healthy uh, relational. Yeah. Space. Let, let me jump on that, lest people think cripple is an exaggeration, because the the way in which I was crippled by that was, I want to say like five things at once here. One, it took me a really long time to realize that the general vibe of my upbringing taught me that love was being sort of subtly, disdainfully undermined all the time. Oh, mm -hmm. Especially if yeah. you have both parents doing the same thing, and usually there's at least some of that going on. As children, we don't have reference points. So... It's not like, and you don't have much of a mental body either for a long time. So in my family, like when I was a child, there was like the lawnmower example, the, the no first without the yes, but there's no like, sweetie, I'm a little concerned that that could be dangerous to the blades, you know, just be careful or, you know, nothing like that. It was just, don't do that. I'm, I don't need to say why it's your fault. Right. And I can think of a half a dozen stories like that, but because we don't have a reference point or a mental body at that point there, there's no we don't have a, a frame of like oh that's how relationality is in this family but in a different circumstance it could be different no it's all yes. relationality and so right. that's the way in which i'm not a victim to having drawn many people who do that constant kind of chronic disdain for me especially in intimate relationships and yeah. it's the way in which i'm responsible for what my parent projection response has been to that, which is to yes. return the disdain with more disdain. Yes. Rather yes. than fire a vulnerable expression. Right. And that's the right. crippling. Because if someone's disdainful for you, with you, and then the only way you are programmed to, conditioned to respond is with more disdain, which is what happened as a teenager, yes. then that's not vulnerable. And then you're just going to get more of it. And now that's the crippling frame of non-relationality that we've been conditioned to. Yeah. And everybody, what I want to say lastly, is everybody has some version of this. And it Everyone. takes usually a lot of um, years and exploration and investigation to be able to see the invisible sort of conditioning, the invisible walls, the invisible relational frames of how you were taught um, uh, distortedly what love is and then walk around with this projection of like, well, of course that's what it is. Well, of course that's what it is. And then, um, you know, you, we discover through our own suffering that, that it's there and they go, oh, maybe these um, passive aggressive remarks that I didn't know I was even making actually come from somewhere. And Maybe I don't actually know what love is in some ways, and right, right. So it's well, a rabbit hole. So 
tragic. Um, it's really tragic in this way because from what where we sit it, with defining the the human the human consciousness essentially as emotive, not mental, energetic, uh, uh, corporal. Uh, uh, um, it, it, what it does is teaches us. It keeps our it keeps our emotional essence. What this Dr. Laura is doing here it keeps our emotional essence at bay, uh, and never come to the forefront. It's a bigger. It's even a bigger problem in psychology right now because they've hit dead ends in the last twenty to thirty years um, with talk therapy. And so, what's happening is you're seeing less and less origination seeking. Yeah. less and less deep causes for things. And we've devolved, especially with the shallow waters that we swim in with social media and all the information coming through that venue rather than respected institutions uh, mm -hmm. anymore. Um, what, you, what you've got is practicality, not mm -hmm. deep causal uh, dynamics are being touted as cure. Well, and I and if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would guess because it's been something I've been thinking about recently. Um, my guess would be that they gave up on the exploration of causes in the unconscious because they did it completely inside the mental body, yes. which won't work. Oh, like yes, psychoanalysis, right. twi twice a right. week for ten years, and you can right. understand everything about what happened to you, and it doesn't make much of a difference if you're not actually deeply feeling it. So yes. they figured, oh, well, we tried causality. Let's try drugs. And yes, right, when, when, right. with the limits of drugs, let's try more control, more coping, because yes. they had the right idea with exploring causality, but they were trying to do it inside the mind. Oh, such a perfect example of uh, Bless's uh, incredible artistic uh, genius, uh, Woody Allen's situation with uh, Freudian. Uh, that's exactly what mm -hmm. they do. Um, and it's so reductionistic by defining the uh, human being as mentalized first, uh, or in Freud's point of view, mental sexualized uh, in some weird way that way. For, for him, so, they were the same. <laughs> they were the same. So Dr. Laura here is um, is uh, uh, got an explicit presentation of an acute problem that is uh, befalling psychology using practical, wanting to use practical means to bypass the actual emotional essentialness of our consciousness. And she's so, creating codependence. She's putting a codependency in the kid too, because she's training consciously or not, or intentionally or not. She's, she's training not only emotional regulation, which we would say is repression, but she's right. training the kid to do it with an other, which is, yes. would be a form of codependence to add something onto it. Not to mention the breaking the authority slope uh, treating a child like a peer is just about the worst thing you can do to undermine a child's sense of uh, wholesome self. Uh, they're being incubated by you parents out there. Mm -hmm. uh, they're being incubated. They're not your peers. They're not your best friend. And it's how many mothers, not so many fathers, but in this particular dimension, how many mothers make best become best friends of their daughters in adult? Uh, that problem was seeded way, way earlier. Uh, that wasn't a, a developmental um, uh, uh, path that unfolded. That that was happening already. Mm -hmm. So, and there's another reason why we 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 um, excoriate this kind of reductionism. 
Not the and, people, and the reductionism. Not the people. Yeah. Just want to insert the people. that. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, you didn't say it. I just want to make sure nobody heard it the other way. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> uh, I love that you're uh, watchdogging that way because we, we, we tend to make our assumptions so um, default. We don't uh, unfold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We mean the behaviors, not the people who are doing the best they know how to do. Yeah. That distinction is even not very well articulated yeah. out there. Even though we have the uh, love the sinner, hate the sin. Yes, even though. Yeah. So coping is for us is uh, simply a unconscious wounded version of human expression, coping. We're not about coping in identity. We want to offer people that there is a way to safely not, not mask our true emotional state, especially with children. Um, uh, you may see it may seem really uh, poisonous to show a child, as you said, inverted a little while ago, uh, you, you swearing a blue streak and, uh, and, and maybe throwing something else in your frustration about breaking the ball. Uh, the whole idea of negative emotions, how many, how many uh, episodes have we... Right, uh, that's the base assumption, right? Yeah, I got to hide these the negative emotions to protect my child right. from... And then there's right. also the assumption that their, their trauma would be content-based, that I could say yeah. something and that would be the yes. trauma rather than yes. the context-based of being felt in their experience moment to moment. Right. So many assumptions right in there. And, you know, just a quick sidebar here. I was watching a video this morning. Um, it was the actor Richard Dreyfus responding to um, uh, woke ideas. Uh, he was quite uh, anti-woke uh, related to um, uh, act, acting in Hollywood and stuff like that, and he said um, the the last black, per, the last white person to play Othello was in 1965. I think he said it was Laurence Olivier, and he did it in blackface, and that was yeah. the last time that happened. And he was going off about you know this is art, and you know nobody should be telling us how to produce the art, and he was saying some really harsh words about it which was cool and everything. But what annoyed me about it is, first of all, what does he know about these kinds of things? He's just an actor. But that there was no paradigmatic <laughs> thinking in it. So when people get upset no. and want to go against wokeism or any, any other ism that they don't like, you hardly ever hear any like, well, is that actually the root of the problem? And is this actually going to fix it? Instead, they just go to a name calling from one side right. to the other it's like that's just gonna <laughs> right. make things worse oh it's so frustrating oh i so hear you there bud that's what makes listening to the news these days so difficult uh, uh claustrophobic I mean, you know. and just to um be completely um uh, open about how we look at things that you can agree with or not agree with for us uh the uh too woke um uh, too wokeness and like in this case here uh, is just as is just as toxic as religious, racist, traditional, uh, religious nationalism. They're equally toxic. We we don't buy into either end of the rainbow here because what those are really are based on exactly what Joseph just said. They don't like um, uh, way shallow kinds of expressions of their paradigms. They want to argue those downline expressions instead of the source of where those ideas come from in the first place. Um, 
so for him to rail against that, uh, well, you can infer that maybe uh, he's a, a Christian nationalist. I don't know. I don't know the guy personally. No, he's a very proud but, Jew. Richard Dreyfus. No. Uh, oh, yeah, that's true. That's right. He is, isn't he? Yeah. So at any rate, uh, th- these kinds of things are exactly applicable. Uh, glad you did a little sidebar there to what we're trying to heartfully criticize uh, in the activity that Dr. Laura is advocating, not not the people. So, what, you know, it feels to me there's people listening right now, my third eye's uh, itching a little um, uh, as they're hearing this in the future when it gets posted. <laughs> well, show uh, role model us what, what, how you guys, how a good parent, a real parent would do that oh, with uh, a kid. situation. Yeah, with the child, uh, why don't you uh, light a candle instead of cursing the darkness? I just heard somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, say, that's say a good, that out good idea. Whoever's thinking so that, thank do. you for that, because Stace will now give that to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's co-create it, Joseph. Uh, you right. want to start with the parent, uh, or do you, uh, and I'll become the child. We can role model this out. Oh wow! Uh, uh, okay, that's like be, performance be, art, improv performance yeah. art. How about it? God damn it! I can't believe I broke that. Oh fuck! I love that bowl. Oh, mom. Wow. What? You just scared me. Whoa. They scared me with how loud you were there. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, sweetheart. That's not your fault. And I'm, I can feel you're afraid. I'm right there with you. I didn't mean to direct that out or at you, but I was just really upset with myself and I had my mind on other things and I don't want you to think that this is on you at all how, how does it feel oh, uh, uh, oh i i guess i guess it it made me worry that if i do something wrong like this you'll get mad at me exactly uh-huh. that way for breaking a bowl that you like and mm-hmm. so if you if you break it uh and, and act that way then it makes me really scared that i got to be really careful uh-huh. not to um to break it too see yeah that's completely reasonable that's completely reasonable to feel that way. I'm sorry. So no, that's okay. Can, can, can I ask a question? Of course. So um, you, you, you're, you did, you, 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 you were just what you felt, right? You just, you were loud and cursing and stuff that way. Is that really okay to do, mom? Is yeah. that okay? Absolutely. You should always feel what you feel. And then what you decide to do with it and express it, that's up to you too. But you should always feel what you feel. That's the most important thing. Well, then why does, why does our teacher get mad at, at, at me if sometimes I burp loud in, at school and she gets really mad at me when mm-hmm. I didn't even know I was going to burp and then I burped really loud and everybody laughed and, and she sent me to a, um, to the principal's office for, for upsetting the class. Mm-hmm. That was just me being um, uh, uh, natural. Uh, yeah. Well, why did they do that? Why that must have been really that? confusing for you. I wish I'd been it, there. Oh, I wish you were too, because it's really hard when when you say we can feel what we feel, but then somebody doesn't like how we do it. Yeah, that's because people get triggered because of their own relationship with their own feelings. So they can't make room for your feelings because their own feelings are not sorted out yet. Oh, 
I, and it's not that, your fault would, that you trigger them. They're triggerable because they're confused themselves and then they make it your fault. Oh, I don't know why, but that makes me feel all warm in the chest. I don't really understand what you said, but you oh, that makes to. me feel really good here. So, um, uh, so, uh, I, I didn't tell you I wet the bed last <laughs> night. I was afraid you'd get really mad at me. I'm really sorry. I'm so ashamed. I don't know why I did, but I remember I used to do it when I was younger, but I didn't want, I, I wanted to close the door and not have you find it. And so I just Aww. want to tell you I wet the bed last night. What did you think my reaction would be? Do you think I would be mad? No, I don't know. I I think I, I felt ashamed mm. and I was afraid that um, I couldn't just be ashamed that mm -hmm. I'd have to be guilty on top of being ashamed. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know, I, I know Cora's mom uh, d does that with, with, with my, uh, with, with my friend and Cora. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would guess I was just afraid that I, that you would get mad at me when I'm really just ashamed of mm -hmm. that it happened. Well, I'm sorry that that shame is there for you because the only reason you would feel ashamed about just being you is because your father and I aren't perfect. That's our responsibility. That's not oh. yours. It's our job to be able to completely receive you from the moment you were conceived and let you be exactly as you are. But because we're not perfect, it causes shame that can be outworked and we've done the best that we can with you, but it's not your fault that you feel ashamed. So you get to feel that. Oh yeah. I'm going to be 10 next month. I mean, this is, that's, I, I, I was still maybe, wetting the bed at 10 as well. Sometimes. You were? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we, I think we have to change the seats, ma. The sheets, ma. Can yeah. we go do that? That's easy to do, of course. Okay. I'm so glad you were willing to tell me how all of this felt for you. Well, I guess, I guess it's because if you let yourself get mad, I, I, I could let myself feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. And right seen. there. <laughs> And scene. That was you, intense. I didn't expect to have to play a mom suddenly. <laughs> oh, I didn't. And I was playing a little girl. I didn't expect that <laughs> oh, either. You... <laughs> no. Uh, so uh, I, that's how I felt when I was saying it anyway. Uh -huh. But th there's a there's a um, uh, a way that we would handle such a thing. And look how it can lead to then bringing a child to decompress their own hold back and share it with the parent because the parent was was whole whole enough in their emotions to just be what they felt that yeah. led with uh, like dominoes falling down for that little girl uh that i was role playing um to be able to um uh, uh, uh reveal her her emotions the other side of the spectrum from sort of frustrated rage uh, or anger to uh, shame, but it's all connected. You can't, you can't make one emotion negative without making, uh, putting a pall over all emotions. 
you think yeah. you can make that distinction, but that's just a mental body thing. Well, that's the protector's main, like one of the, com- uh, I don't know, not commandments. It's sort of one of the principles of what the protector um, is based on. It's like that I can traffic cop good versus bad emotions and manage. That's the basis of coping, right? I'll get to feel all the good emotions and then um, cope with the bad ones and do something with them. And somehow I'll be whole while I split myself in two. That's the hope. And that's the the um, absurdity of the dead ending um, that we see in this passage that I read at the beginning of like, yeah, are you having um, trouble with this? Well, use your kids to practice it. Get the whole family, uh, you know, in, in traditional coping mechanisms. Um, make, make it a, a family ritual. Oh, great. So instead of, you know, prayers before bed at night, it's, um, you know, neuroscientist-based coping mechanism type stuff. I do want to yeah. say I, I think I could have been a, a a better parent, but I was a little taken off guard by suddenly having to perform it. <laughs> Sorry, I just sort of arose. Oh there. no, it was I great. I was. I just want to say I okay. think I could do better than that. Just in case anybody was like, I don't know quite if I felt Joseph's performance there. I, I think I could have more of an open heart, but I was a little nervous. But but what I, what I want to say is, even though that was for me um, a little bit on the mental and energetic side, just mm-hmm. saying the words. Yes. All of what you feel is okay goes way against most of our societal conditioning, and that alone would go a really long way, even if you can't really embody it. Yes. So, uh, good point. Yeah, you, you you don't get to be uh, we get to be imperfect while we're trying to follow the reality that we're embodied that we're emotive first, which means real and raw trumps coping and a mentalizing every single time, even in a situation like this. So um, it's just a small uh, example of the kind of damage that good parents, the people parents, the people dimension of parents, good people parents are making every day because they've not gotten good uh, um, parenting skills. Uh, In other words, it's not parents' fault if you're a parent out there, it's parenting that's the problem, not the parents themselves. So in this case, uh, Laura, Dr. Laura here is helping the next generation be just as uh, emotionally confused and protected over their raw heart as we've been for 10,000 years. Yeah, there's another piece that I just got about this, this passage. The quote is, um, the, the mock quote inside the quote is, I'm feeling angry because I dropped the bowl and it broke. I think I need to take some deep breaths. Implicit oh, yeah. in that is anger's bad. Mm-hmm. Anger's yes. bad. So the communication right. is anger is bad. Some emotions are good and bad. When the bad ones come up, you make them go away in the most efficient way possible. I mean, right. that literally could be conditioning the kid to use drugs because that's yes, what drugs exactly. do. And so yes. it made me think of, I've, I've had a, 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 a protector part sort of um, um, youngifying and more of the felt qualities of my childhood. Or I was thinking, I've been thinking about my um, childhood memories like um, the connect the dots uh, oh, games yeah. uh-huh. where it's like some of the outline is there. And, mm-hmm. and you got to finish the outline and then you also have to color it in and the feelings feel like the coloring it in part. And oh, nice. so this part that I've been working with, more of it's been coloring in and with this, this lawnmower example that came up um, and what we were just talking about made me realize like, I don't know if I can think of a single time 
when my parents vulnerably expressed emotion. I remember when my dog died. I remember my father said, I think I'm going to cry. And that was like probably the only time I remember it. And then related to this part, I remember when I, um, around 12 or 13, when I unconsciously, unconsciously started to become a very different person than who I was, um, uh, I remember judging the hell out of myself for how sensitive I was, one. And two, I remember crying very often, saying out loud to myself, no one likes me, nobody likes me, nobody likes me. And oh it God. never occurred to me once to share that with my parents. Never once. Why would it occur to me to share that with? Because the implicit modeling was, we don't talk about negative emotions here. And even though this, what Dr. Laura is saying, it would be a more sophisticated way of relating in one way, the message is the same. If the emotion is problematic, make it go away. Mom, I'm feeling like nobody likes me. Can we take some deep breaths together? It would do the same thing. Exactly. It would result in the same thing. uh, And I... Maybe Dr. Laura is a, an aficionado, not a connoisseur, but an mm-hmm. aficionado of Eastern transcend, transcendental paradigms, where taking the deep breaths is transcending the rawness of the moment, uh, so as to um, inside a context of negativizing the raw emotion. Well, that's the door. Beautiful segue. That's the door into the sage and saint, the new age spirituality uh, version of regulating emotions. What do you want to say about exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah. When I want to come back to this, but just we'll do a mm-hmm. quick sidebar here. It's a great um, a moment or door to go through right this moment because mm-hmm. basically, with with if you unpack the paradigms of the East. Uh, they would agree that they're best friends forever these days. Uh, dancing Wu Li masters uh, and neuroscience are uh, BFFs these days mm-hmm. because they both define humanity as being mental oriented, mind brain, or physical, however you want to say that. And so uh, uh, pro- tra- problematic emotions are reduced in an existential level of reductionism to getting in the way of raising your energy to higher vibrations. Which is not what enlightenment is, but popularly understood as. Yes, exactly. Or or even getting a little more sophisticated, don't overattach to any of these temporarily arising negative emotional states. Oh, acknowledge them. Don't repress them. Watch them, watch them until they dissipate. Just let it go, right, which is... uh, which is exactly again an inferred negativity. Yeah. But now it has a spiritual aegis uh, yeah. that is supporting it. Uh, they're just as confused. The East are just as confused about the essentialness of consciousness um, uh, as neuroscientists are. And yet yeah. they, you see. And so and related to sagehood practices, it may sound like acknowledging and allowing a an emotion. It may sound like that's the same as getting emotionally intimate with the emotion. It may sound like semantics, but it's definitely not. No, this is is not semantic. This is epistemic. And Uh, even real Zen, I mean, I've heard, I don't remember who said it, but um, one of the early, maybe one of the later Zen patriarchs, like um, 6th or 7th century, I've heard Enlightenment called uh, intimacy with all things. Well, that would include emotion. 
right? Yes. <laughs> and they may not have the, the skills or differentiated differentiability or models or whatever, but um, there are some Zen teachers that do speak to greater levels of intimacy and some of lesser. However, if their yes. overarching paradigm is there is no essential self, then right. any intimacy with an emotion is going to be preset with an expectation yeah. of, yeah, just be with it intimately and eventually it will go away because it doesn't have exactly. any real substance, like a dream. Like, yes. yeah, pay attention to your dream, let your dream be. And then eventually you'll get that it's not real. And that's enough to invalidate uh, an emotion and, and cause real emotional health problems. Yeah, especially when uh, inside that overarching uh, paradigm of Zen, uh, emotions are just defined as sticky forms of thought. Right. Uh, they're just sticky. They tend to bind us to polarities of uh, uh, over-gripping or, uh, or, or over-repugnance. Uh, that, that whole uh, uh, yeah, that's rainbow a, there. That's a great distinction. I hadn't thought of it coming at that angle, that thoughts and emotions actually need quite... Well, let's say, put it this way. The Buddhism, with a capital B, um, puts thoughts and feelings in the same category. Yes, right. Mm-hmm without understanding that feelings need to be peeled back to emotions and emotions need to be peeled back to emotivity. And then there's the soul. Yes. Whereas with thoughts, there is very often and usually a lot of truth to, they come and go and aren't very meaningful at all, but not with feelings. That's the fatal error that they make. And therein uh, lies how emotivity as defining human, as the base bandwidth of of, uh, human consciousness uh, has been so um, uh, massacred or has been so inapplicable to even sophisticated Eastern transcendental uh, consciousness unpackers, right? So in in this sense, uh, what this Dr. Laura is talking to her here has applications in spirituality also Mm -hmm. uh, and how spirituality defines attainment, whatever attainment model they're working with. But there's another dimension I have to bring here for this child and Dr. Laura's example here that we haven't spoke to that really clearly brings us home where the rubber meets the road with emotional essence, emotivity as essence. And that is children are born this way. Children's consciousnesses before the mental body kicks in, before they, uh, before they have experience with an eye, they are experience before they have an eye uh, which happens five, six, uh, uh, seven years old, when the nightmares come of uh, fear of death, which is really interesting uh, thing oh, to yeah. talk about. I have um, this, but but when at that age, yeah, mm-hmm. me so did I. Um, but but in that in that way, a child, if if, if identity is correct, that uh, uh, you can track back as Joseph just beautifully did from a feeling to an emotion to a core emotive to the soul. Children are soul. They haven't yet, um, uh, uh, between the ages of birth and six, five, six, or seven, they all they are are emotive. They have emotive response, hunger, emo, uh, the emotion of, of of feeding their physical body for wanting to nurse, for example. Uh, they they cry. Uh, they can't yet uh, meta their eye to a place where they have feelings rather than being feelings. So that child in our little uh, uh, performance art there, and the one um, in in Dr. Laura's example. 
what's missed in the, the horror show there is that the parent has already lost their access to their own emotive primacy, their own soul. Yeah. Uh, they've been they've been conditioned to be mental first or mostly willful first uh, with a sidebar to mental or mental first with a sidebar to willful first. And they and they compress, reduce uh, their emotional states because that's what they saw and their parents do. And their parents saw what their parents did, like you described for yourself, all the way back for 10,000 generations. So what identity is talking about here is a complete reframing uh, of what a child needs. If that child is essentially emotive, what mama did in that case with the broken bowl mm. is just train her to be uh, not who she really is. I have another story from just yesterday related to this. I was in the, um, I was picking out some uh, Guinness and hard cider in the uh, Safeway uh, aisle on my way home yesterday from a bunch of errands. And I was intentionally trying to let my more playful side out as I was doing errands uh, and also feel the terror of existence at the same time to show that those two things could go together. And it was going really well. And I did something I normally don't do, but it just sort of happened. And I think it worked out OK. And I, I won't judge myself for it. But uh, it, there was two parents and um, this little girl who was somewhere, let's say, let's say 18 months old, plus or minus six months, sitting in the cart. And her eyes just went right through me. And I just, yeah. as, as I saw her as we connected um, in a pretty deep way, it just hit me, Andromedan. This is a little Andromedan girl. And I was like, oh. And then oh, I said it out loud. Nice. I go, oh, there's a little Andromedan. And and I started talking to the parents. And she, and she went more into me when I, after I said that. And then the parents started asking questions. And I started saying, and they were actually pretty receptive to it. And then... I felt this hardening in myself and I looked at the girl and she looked a little pissed. It was pretty subtle, but she looked a little pissed and I could tell, or I just got intuitively, it's because I was talking about her while she was there as if she couldn't follow it. Wow. And I, I just felt that. It was like we were connected right. and then I felt a, like something ground to a halt. And then she uh -huh. didn't say anything. She just looked kind of like, she was starting to like scrunch her eyes a little bit. And I went, oh, I'm sorry. This was terribly rude. I wasn't including you in this. And she softened a little bit. And of course, the parents months. didn't know what. <laughs> 18 months? Year? Give or uh, take maybe even... two. I mean, she, yeah. was, she didn't talk. So, wow. um, yeah. And it was just all feelable. And so the, the, the wild thing about it, what I wanted to say related to what you said a few minutes ago, is when you do enough uh, emotional body ensoulment, you won't have to believe what you asserted right. that children start out this way, you will just experience it. Right. Children before I'd say anywhere between five easily, but probably even more yeah. like 10, they're yeah. just far more open and feelable than adults are. And if you don't notice that it's because your heart is closed to a significant degree. Her right. heart was like 10 feet wide and her parents felt like, you know, was barely leaving their skin. And I had this whole yeah. conversation with her and was even like rude to her and apologized. And she didn't even have to say a word. It was just all obvious. And wow. And her parents didn't even notice. It was weird. Well, and I just heard a third eyed someone who listens to this in the future in the post of this uh, podcast. Wait a minute. You're saying that my heart is closed even though I love my child so much? Mm. And the answer is 
Yes, you can love your child completely and have that internal experience and have it completely non-transactable to the child if you have shut down your own emoto-soulful identity. And I'm, we all have had to shut that down to some degree by every parent, gener parenting generation back 10,000 generations. And, you know, I think we just stumbled across the answer that I think I think it's actually a protector in me has been asking recently. And the question has been, why is it that when you hurt an adult, it does something different than when you hurt a kid? And this is the answer because the kid's heart is yes. 10 feet wide open and can't close it, can't shut it down. They cannot cope with it. Yeah. And so they're literally like a punching bag. They have to receive everything. They have no choice to leave. They can't retort. They don't know what to do with it. So it's like they're just like a, um, I just get the image of an, an open vessel, like a jar, and just whatever yeah. you pour into them just goes in. And exactly. that's how, that's the way in which they're true victims and why they have to shut their hearts down like the the vast majority of adults. And I was one of those parents too. I, I, I still remember the month and year when I started to actually feel love to a significant degree, degree for the first time in my I don't know, late 20s, early 30s. It's like, that's how big a deal it is. And that's why it's so lovely to come across a child out in the yes. world because you can usually feel them from about 20 feet away. But yeah. but the other adults don't. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, to uh, uh, hook on to uh, Joseph's experience here, I uh, this happens to me all the time where I'll lock on, or, ch or a child will lock on to me actually because... I'm walking by and 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 no, there's you were out of normal time zone. There's no yeah. time happening. Yeah. There's an instant connect, and that child becomes a rubberneck as they're going opposite me, and they're just keep turning in the um, in their little pram, uh, looking at me, and I will not lose. I will not break it off until we can't do it anymore. Yeah. I always stay with the child, and. This is the whole conversation that we're having, my soul to their soul, completely off the radar screen to the parent. And the parents usually look at me like, well, are you some weirdo? You know, yeah. are you eyeing my kid? Yeah. But I want, I want to give my own example here. Uh, when uh, I was nine or 10, maybe 11 at the most, seventh, eighth grade. Yeah, so something between sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And uh, I asked, uh, we were had our religion class in our little Catholic school with the boys on one side, or the, all uh, the boys on one side and girls on the other side of the class. You know, they, they were separated. I didn't know that. They oh, separate yeah. you in the classroom? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then at high school, the girls have to be in an entire different building and the boys in their building across the campus. That yeah, because you can't have those school. negative sexual things expressing oh, no. in any way. Absolutely right? not. Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, at any rate, um, I asked the nun, uh, we're having religion class, uh, we're, they were talking about um, church, uh, the Catholic church in some way. And I asked the the the, um, the nun, was, we got on the, on the topic of money and I, and I, and I said, uh, if money is the root, of, I asked if the money is the root. I was really honest, sincere. If money is the root of all evil, why does the uh, the priest ask for money every every Sunday in mass? <laughs> and brutal and question. The, and and it was, and my eyebrows were like this, you know. And I, I was, I really wanted to know why Father McNamara, whoever his name was, always asked for money if it's the root of all evil. Well, the the the, the nun went agape. 
and uh, um, I had to go to the principal's office afterwards. She didn't send me that moment, but she talked to the principal and the principal, I had to go the next day and, and, and ask why I was being so um, uh, antagonistic to the nun when I was answering, asking a simple, heartful question of confusion. There's exactly another example of here, a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, and asking a, a really honest, reasonable question being shamed by the paradigm of the authority figure uh, in that way, because there's no room to question anything in Catholicism. Right, because uh, she got triggered because she couldn't answer yes. the question. And so yes. then had to paint the picture to the principal that you were yes. being antagonistic because she yes. can't admit that she actually got triggered because the paradigm of Catholicism doesn't have, if you're triggered, then that's you're being influenced by evil. Exactly. And she, you can't admit that or else you can't be a nun very well, can you? <laughs> no, she, she lost in her, with her, inside of her own perception of herself, she lost her own respect for herself mm -hmm. when she couldn't answer and then had to cover that with a playing a victim to my innocent question and then get the, the principal to talk to me because she was too embarrassed or guilty to try to talk to me, but didn't register that oh. to herself. I mean, you get dizzy uh, uh, um, looking x-ray heart through all these levels yeah. of what's really going on in any simple conversation. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, um, I think uh, we've uh, come at uh, Dr. Laura's. Uh, well, I, uh, I want to say add one thing onto that. Um, actually, sure. my I, I had a, a client uh, this morning suggest to me that my next uh, class uh, with my group could be uh, people bringing incidents from their childhood and then unpacking them, like well, just like we just did. Like, what were the actual dynamics oh. going on? Oh, and, that's a great. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I'm I'm going to do that. Um, uh, go to clearandopen.com to find me more or email me if you're interested. Um, uh, shameless plug. It was, it was no shame there. It was without shame. It was completely healed. That was an innocent plug. Core soul level innocence plug. Um, Good. Uh, I confirm that. Thank you. No, it's just a joke. I don't know. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, crap. See, when you make a joke, sometimes you lose the trend of thought. Um, Bringing uh, children, uh, things from childhood. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I, heard, I heard, just like you've been doing, I heard a response from possibly someone in the audience who would say, um, man, you guys are doing a lot of analysis of what's going on, uh, you know, on emotional uh, level dynamics. And what I want to say is when you do this work, it doesn't require analysis. It's not something that you do. Right. The same way right. if you look at a billboard, it's not like heavy reading. You just right. see it. <laughs> Right. Just, there it is. And that's right. another right. proof of yeah. how well the the um, paradigm works. Because when you, the only reason I would say this all the time, the only reason you don't see unconscious emotional motives and dynamics in other people is because you're not seeing them in yourself. When you start yes. seeing them themselves, they just start to show up everywhere. Just like when yeah. you, you know, start researching that you're going to buy a Ford Ranger, you start seeing all the Ford Rangers on the road. They just become right. apparent and the uh, and that's the natural state of a human being to both have an open heart um like like children do and feel a lot yes and right. on the more energetic side to be able to read out motives and dynamics and which is often very helpful often very confusing and distressing as well but um it can cut both ways well i love that you brought this because um for us we start with the emotional reality and out of that evolve the map 
mm-hmm. or the analysis, right? Now, af- after 30 years of um, uh, incepting this thing and learning and having my beloved uh, Brie come in and start filling in all the colors to my framework uh, and, and rebaking the incubating the whole process of, uh, in, in her own genius way, uh, uh, when you come over 30 years or so, you compile a lot of framework maps and analyses. And we use them here in the podcast uh, yeah. to give patency to, to what the paradigm is and how it operates. But Joseph just made a really critical um, uh, uh, incept here that we start with what the emotional being is already feeling and already projecting uh, and already not solving. And we yeah. try to keep an incubator for And that. I can PS onto my Safeway story. As I left, I was having a pretty good day. It was a really nice balance of feeling very sensitive to uh, everything and um, feeling the terror of being and being with that. And then as I left, it was my last errand, and I started to feel this heaviness and some sort of um, orneriness at the world. And I saw it sort of starting to rise like a, like a bunch of water. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. What, what happened? And my first response is like, well, I'm tired. I just, I'm starting to shut down. I can't be this open anymore. And I was like, yeah, what if that's not true? What, no, really, what happened? Was there a trigger? And then I realized what it was. Uh, the, the, those two parents I was talking to, the, the father, I think he was a little drunk. I think they were tourists. I think he was a little drunk. And he fist bumped me at one point and kind of hit my fist like hard, which rarely people do. He hit it like so that it hurt a little bit. And another point, he shook my hand and he squeezed it like a little too hard, like some men oh. do. And, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and what I realized was, because part of what I'm working with in the part that I'm uh, working with right now is permission to be very sensitive because that was so um, uh, repressed by my parents, oppressed by my parents. And what I realized was that I, that physically hurt twice and I didn't let myself emotionally feel it. And then my protector was starting to rise up and hate the world as a way to not feel the sensitivity. Wow. And then I just took like five or 10 minutes to just feel this sadness of like, I'm really sensitive in a world that isn't sensitive and that's hard. And then I felt way better. And then I didn't have to fight with that part, didn't have to fight against the world anymore. And so the the mental energetic orientation of this world is fucked and I hate it didn't have to exist or the diagnosis of how that guy was kind of a tool and all that. None of that was necessary because he was. But but I didn't have to come out of my people are all essentially a beautiful place, which I was doing pretty well. I didn't have to come out of that just by feeling like, oh, yeah, he's kind of denser and coarser than me. And he invited me. He, they were so impressed with my soul species read of their child. He invited me to go have beers with him, which I declined politely. <laughs> it was a whole adventure, yeah. Um, but it, but that's just an example of how the the feeling first, how important that is, and and how everything hinges on that. This is we don't. It's hard to transmit that in a podcast because we're having to find the right words and keep things going and all that. Exactly, and uh, a, even a finer point of that is why we have difficulty in sharing uh, what this parent, how this paradigm actually helps people change yeah. because the way the this assumption that we have that we start with emotions first uh, as the, as human consciousness essence, 
uh, challenges 10,000 generations of philosophy and religion and spirituality. And, and so there's not thing, there's not boxes out there in, in conditioned people's heads that we can uh, attend to and say, well, here's how we do things. We actually first start with here's why we do things. Mm-hmm. And then, then we secondarily uh, will come out, but doing the why is really hard to sell. So we don't sell. Um, we, we, and we never got, I, I hope none of any of us who represent the paradigm uh, never get in the habit of selling because uh, that means uh, we're not, we're not really starting from the place of um, what is rather than what we want it should to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to start with what is first and explaining what is emotion first is off the radar screens of people. So that's why it's hard for us to um, describe what we do and how we do it, but but and, and so often just go to why we do it and give examples like we did today. Mm-hmm. So um, in that sense, uh, uh, this was a lot today and I really appreciate how we um, just sort of unfolded that, Joe. So that was- Yeah, really that was cool, cool for not knowing what the topic yeah. was until literally the last minute. Exactly. Uh, one more thing yeah. I want to say about that is the the more the paradigm evolves, the to add to the difficulty of talking about it and and conveying the experience of it, the more it evolves, the more improvisational and unpredictable yes. it seems to become. Believe it or not, <laughs> ten fifteen years ago, it was far more structured. <laughs> As it was, uh, well, and it was, still it very was... unstructured, but far more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just the emphasis now has or the experience experiential version of it has caught up to the sobriety of the framework uh and Mm. and so that 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 balances everything out just as it should be but it also blunts and blurs how to how to how to articulate the framework when you're including the experience with it they're they're really coming together now uh uh, the yin and the yang of the Mm. paradigm uh which required a lot of deconstructing of the paradigm itself myself in that way but I also want to add one last personal thing too. You've been so self-revealing in this, Joseph, is on your last point uh, for permission to be sensitive. Mm. Uh, in my work uh, at the moment uh, uh, in facilitation, uh, I've been invited to um, admit uh, uh, that I or that I have permission to not be compassionate. Mm. And I and this is has a really interesting uh, counterintuitive outcome because. The more I give myself permission to not be compassionate, it puts me into the same place of affirming how sensitive I am. Uh-huh, uh, of course, because it brings and, back and I, to you. Mm-hmm. It does. And, 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 and the, the counterintuitive, I have permission not to be compassionate. But the layer right under compassionation, compassionation, <laughs> compassion sure. uh, comes out of um, care plus sensitivity. And so counterintuitively, but it makes sense to me once it started to settle in, Joseph, that um, it brought me back to myself uh, that I don't that I don't just use com- um, care for others as my self-identification uh-huh. or self um, how I've experienced myself through, but myself not not to have compassion in the world gave me permission to have compassion for myself. And yeah, how do you communicate really these cool. kinds of paradoxical <laughs> exactly. things to people? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I, I told Joseph when we started this um, uh, this podcast that 
this break that's happened in between the last one and this one, what, six weeks or something, something or like that, more yeah. than that, uh, I I normally feel like biscotti when I start a podcast. I'm uh, I, I'm good bread, but I'm it's hard. Uh, just by comparison, it's an exaggeration to make the point. Today, I felt like a warm pie coming out of the oven. And uh, that's because uh, in many ways uh, of the kind of things I've been doing, that's difficult to articulate uh, in, a, in a podcast because it's so experiential. We have to secondarily derive sometimes new mental boxes to describe a new experience. Uh, the old, I heard, I remember a quote by someone, uh, couple thousand years ago that you can't pour uh, the new wine into old wineskins. And uh, that that metaphor by Jesus is a beautiful metaphor for how we can't put new wine of emotive first uh, consciousness into the old wineskins of, men wine of mental com uh, boxes and understandings. It's a chore. So we got to sort of limp our way. <laughs> Uh, heart, heart first, and um, hope that the concepts all make some sense to people too. Well, I'm on the edge of my seat, wondering um, often what it would look like and how it would happen that identity would get any, um, or even just one part of it, emotional body and soulment would get any um, mainstream or widespread interest, given that literally um, almost every single person on the planet is dead set against their unconscious being discovered. And NEBE <laughs> yes. is a map to discover that which the most base, after surviving, after just surviving yes. and breathing the next breath and beating right. the next beat, uh, human right. beings are dead set against keeping the unconscious unconscious. So how anybody could be interested in it at all is still a miracle in so many ways. I'm so well, curious amen. how it unfolds. <laughs> Uh, amen to that. How long has Jung's uh, concept uh, been out there and yet nobody lives it, literally, yeah. that the unconscious rules the conscious until the conscious realizes that the unconscious rules the conscious and the conscious learns to then one day soon rule the unconscious. Uh, that alone, that little mouthful right there is exactly what Joseph is talking about. And I wonder too. Yeah, I was talking to a client recently about unconscious motives, help him get curious about that with the people that he manages, even on a very superficial level. Um, and he, I know, is like myself, a very proud, a, um, a proud uh, graduate of the Landmark Education's Curriculum for uh -huh. Living. We both are graduates okay. of that. I did that around uh -huh. 2000. And so uh -huh. we talked about, uh, we're talking about intentions and outcomes and what gets in the way. And when people don't do what they say they're going to do, what to do? He's like, well, they just need to recommit. He kept saying, it was this very willpower based. They just need to recommit. And uh -huh. I helped saying like, well, what about unconscious motives that were actually going against the intention? And then we yeah. hung up and everything was fine. And then it hit me later. It's like, wait a minute. Landmark education does dip its toe into unconscious yes, motives. It does. If you don't, if your intention doesn't come to fruition in to outcome, then you're supposed to, what they would say is look for what they call an inauthenticity, a story, yes. a, uh, yes. a winning formula is another one of their tools, a, um, a racket. These are a little um, and quite brilliant and easy to digest uh, sort of yes. packagings of unconscious material. But what I found right. it fascinating and I, what I wrote him, I was like, wait a minute, I remember the Landmark Forum. This unconscious motives is in there. 
How did you forget that? How did you do the landmark education and then forget about the unconscious motives? Well, the answer is because the unconscious doesn't want you to think that way. That's why. (laughs) That's right. The unconscious is conscious of itself. Mm. It has will. It has strategy. It has a wary eye and uh, everything human in your life. So uh, this is not just a passive, um, impersonal uh, being, this unconscious. It's got agenda. It's got agenda. And I I love what you just said there because, yeah, that was, um, what's his name's a genius showing there. Warner Earhart, not his real name. Earhart. Yeah. Yeah. it shows his genius. Yeah. But if you don't see all those landmark genius items inside a context that the unconscious is emotive first yeah. uh, and sh- will show the conscious that it is, uh, that, um, that uh, without that emotional primacy, then landmark is going to serve thousands and thousands and thousands of people, but not be able to serve the soul in a deeper way mm-hmm. so it was great for its time and so yeah. it was very clarifying it was, so. a, it was a groundbreaking intro for me to my own unconscious yeah. in a way that was practical and actionable yeah. and i'm so glad it exists out there i just wish yeah. they would tell people when you hit a wall and this stuff isn't working for you anymore it means you got to go further into your unconscious not buy another program just what they, yes. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it means you've hit a limit here. Maybe you should buy a new program. But uh, yeah, if you can't control your unconscious uh, with your conscious mind um, right. anymore, then it's time to move on. Same with AA. I'd yeah. say the same kind of thing. Of like, and, and to Scientology on steroids. Yes. You know, uh, same same thing. So, okay. All, All right. right. We'll, we'll close here. What we'll talk about next time, we have no idea. But um Oh, we, we do need to record another one. I shouldn't be saying this on air, on air but oh well. We, we should record another one uh, uh, soon because I'm going to drop this in two days. So we we got to double up so I have a buffer. And I'm telling okay. the audience that right now for no reason whatsoever. Sure. <laughs> okay, Joseph. <laughs> Too hard to edit let's out. Do it, let's do it with another one before next, uh, next Wednesday. Yeah, we'll do then, one huh? on like Monday or Tuesday and then Wednesday again. Super. Thank you, Stace. Thank you, listeners. Uh, I, here's an assignment for those of you who uh, care to take one on. Look for your coping mechanisms. Find your coping <laughs> mechanisms. You don't even have to do anything with them. Just notice them. See right. how they work and uh, how they're not working and just because they can be subtle. And um, definitely don't use any children to help your coping mechanisms out if you have been yes, leading please don't. Dr. Laura. Please. Just try not doing that, please. Yeah. Thank you, okay, Stace. Wonderful. Thanks, listeners. You're welcome, Joseph. Bye Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Heart of Soul podcast. To learn more about Stace Barron and Identity, please visit identity.org. To learn more about Joseph Shapiro, visit clearandopen.com. Until next time, we wish you well on your journey. <laughs>